seems like the events of First Samuel 21 are not reserved for that time of history as we see a man killing a bunch of innocent people. We see that happening again and again uh, in our own culture. It's evil. Uh, Psalm 52 calls it evil. We would call it evil. But at the same time, David in Psalm 52 talks about the steadfast love of the Lord. And for many people in our culture, perhaps even many of us here this morning, we have a really hard time putting those things together. We have a hard time understanding how God can be steadfast in his love in a world full of evil. Because if God were truly steadfast in his love, wouldn't he wipe it all out? That's the way many think. It's not the way the Bible talks. God has good and just reasons for allowing horrific evil into the world. All the while never condoning it, nor acting himself in doing it. But he nevertheless, in his own infinite wisdom, which we will never question when we actually hear it, allows and uses and wields in the world all the bad actors, all the devil and his emissaries to accomplish his good purpose in the world. How does that all work? We're going to talk about that this morning. The background to Psalm 52 is 1 Samuel 21, and we've been making our way through 1 Samuel this year. We've paused to consider the Psalms these last several weeks that David wrote during this historical period in the Scriptures. And we're almost done. We've got two more Psalms after this one, but we're in Psalm 52 this week. And the background, as Dave read for us, is... Doeg, the Edomite, who was a servant of King Saul, and we all know King Saul did not like David because David was the emerging king who was coming to the throne, which means Saul would be removed from the throne. Doeg overhears a conversation between David and Ahimelech, the high priest, and Ahimelech helps David. He provides him food. He provides him Goliath's sword. He provides him with protection and provision for his wilderness wandering that he's going on. Well, Doeg and David insinuates in 1 Samuel 21, kind of knowing that this would eventually happen, Doeg goes back to Saul, because after all, he doesn't want to be at the end of Saul's sword. He's there, perhaps unintentionally, but he overhears David's plans and ideas and Ahimelech's provision and protection for David, and Doeg reports back to Saul that he was with Ahimelech the high priest, that is, David was. Saul, of course, is grateful in his own wicked and perverse way for this news. And he tells the men there to, to go to Ahimelech and question him about this, whole, or actually calls Ahimelech to him to, uh, to figure out what's been going on here. And of course, Ahimelech discloses what happened, that he saw David and talked to David and provided for David in certain ways. And what happened as a result of Doeg's disclosure that David was talking to Ahimelech? Well, in verses 18 and 19 of 1 Samuel 22, we read that Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck down the priests, killing 85 people who were in the priesthood, in addition to many citizens of the city of Nob. Man, woman, child, infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he killed. That had nothing at all to do with anything that Ahimelech did. And Ahimelech did nothing wrong. Nevertheless, not only was he killed, or he killed, but also his servants, 
and many other priests who served with them. There was one who escaped that we know of, a high tube, the son of a high tube named Abiathar. And he flees to David and he tells David of what happened. And of course, David, in his own humble way, acknowledges that he did have some part in this, even albeit it's not even his fault. But he, but he feels some measure of guilt for what's happened. He, you can almost hear him saying, I wish I would have never even talked to him because I knew this would get back to Saul in some way and Saul would have his way with the priesthood. Can you imagine trying to process all that? David acting like a fugitive, an innocent fugitive on the run from a man who's hunting down his life all the while people are being killed in your wake for even talking to you. The massacre of the innocent at the hands of the ungodly, all done from the orders of an evil, jealous king. It wouldn't be an overstatement to say that this whole incident is Hitler-esque, isn't it? And that it's in light of these events that David writes Psalm 52. When David finds out about the destruction that's been caused by Doeg, Psalm 52 is written as a response, as a way for David to process it all before the Lord. Can you imagine how you might try to process the mass murder of holy men of God and a whole city full of men, women, animals, infants that are now dead? David felt great remorse for his part when he heard what had happened. And the last few weeks, we've considered how the Psalms help us to process the various emotions that we encounter as we have faced the troubles of life. The last two weeks, we've considered the themes of abuse and abandonment, and this week in Psalm 52, we're going to look at evil. Every Christian, in the face of injustice and uh, in a fallen world, in fact, every human being, not just Christians who face injustice in a fallen world, can draw lessons from Psalm 52 about how to think about evil correctly and how to respond to it rightly. So in Psalm 52, what we're going to see this morning is four different responses to evil. The wicked's response in the first four verses, God's response in verse 5, the godly's response in verses 6 and 7, and David's response in verses 8 and 9. The wicked, God, the godly, and David. Those four responses to evil in Psalm 52 this morning. Number one, let's look at the wicked's response to evil in verses 1 through 4. David begins the psalm with the very phrase that we're considering this morning, calling what has, been, what has happened evil. He says, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? He has the destruction of Doeg in the background, all that's happened. And this, these first four verses are written as a denunciation of what Doeg has done. David reflects on Doeg's character and he's in, he's in, he's in angry that he's been indicted and censured. And we learn here to no surprise just how David views Doeg. Doeg is a lying, slandering Self-interested murderer, period. Now, while Doeg is the immediate recipient of David's denunciation in these first four verses, there are general insights here about 
who the wicked are in general and how the wicked generally respond to evil. Notice how the wicked are described. They are first of all described fundamentally by what they do with their mouths. Look at verse 2. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. Plots destruction with the tongue. Deceives with the tongue. Verse 3. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Verse 4. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Does that sound weird to you, that that, that that would be the place where the psalm would start in a discussion of the wicked in terms of evil? We live in a day of loose lips, don't we? Where people literally incinerate one another with their words. They deceive with their words. They do not speak the truth. I don't care where you land on the political spectrum. They do not speak the truth. They lie. They deceive. They plot destruction. They figure out ways to get what they want, no matter what they have to say to get it. Friends, this is where the most horrific evil always begins. So lest you think this is just an out-there problem, this is an in-here problem. Do you think about your words that way? Do you think about the way, do you really believe the Bible? Life and death are in the power of the tongue. As James 3 says, the, the tongue is like a flame of fire that burns as it goes out. It's like a rudder that controls the entire ship. This is why Jesus can say, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is why Jesus can say, Matthew 20 and Matthew 12, every, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Well, how do we know the tree? How do we know if it's a good tree? How do we know if it's a bad tree? Jesus says, how can you speak good when you're evil? Jesus starts with the mouth. Because the mouth is always the revealer of the condition of the heart. Always. It doesn't matter how reformed your life is. It doesn't matter how good you look. What you say is your evidence. And what you think that you want to say, even if you don't say it, is the evidence. Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That should frighten you. Kids, that should frighten you. Part of, being, part of being young, and this is not just reserved for being young, it's also for being old, is your speech is marked by carelessness. If this verse does not show you your need for a Savior, I don't know what verse will. 
Because Jesus just says, you're going to give an account to him, not for the bad things you say, for the careless things you say. For the things that just come out of your mouth, because they came out of your heart. And it shows your heart is altogether wrong and in need of newness. You need a new heart. Where are you going to get that? Well, Jesus is going to give it to you, right? We have to get it from him. Dear ones, wickedness is fundamentally revealed in this psalm by what we say, by how we talk. Of all the things Doeg did, his murder is not what's talked about first here. It's his mouth. It's the way he used his tongue. It's his lies. It's his slander. If you want a snapshot of your heart, just listen to your mouth. Of your thoughts, if you have some self-control to restrain your words. Judgment of the wicked will first be revealed in the speech of the person judged. Every careless word is in the books. Now notice how the wicked respond to evil. First of all, verse 1 says they boast about it. The wicked boast about it. If it were a modern translation, they would Instagram it. They'd live stream it. That is, it's something they're proud of. They have no regard for God and his law. Doeg's confidence is not in God. It's in his own and Saul's cleverness. And his confidence is also based on a transient sense of reward. He's self-satisfied. He's self-confident. He's confident that by his own cleverness that he'll be rewarded by Saul. Which is ironic because Saul cares for no one but himself. But like attracts like and Doeg's the same. Doeg is staking his future and the richness of it on the reward of Saul. And I imagine Doeg is plotting that if Saul doesn't give me what I want, I'll just kill him too. And Saul's probably thinking the same thing. It doesn't seem to occur to Doeg, what happens if Saul's no longer there? What happens if Saul is overthrown? Well, the wicked boast, and secondly, the wicked love evil. You see that in verse 3? David writes, you love evil more than good. Not only do the wicked boast in evil, not only do they plot evil, not only do they use their words to hurt, not only are they deceitful, but they really love it that way. Doeg, you see, really encapsulates the character of a wicked man or woman. He's prideful. He's self-centered. He uses his words as weapons and for the advancement of his own desired ends. He justifies any means. He trusts in his own cleverness, not in God, not in his loving kindness, but in his own wiles, his own schemes, and his own ability to get what he wants. David summarized it this way in verse 7. See the man who would not make God his refuge. That's where wickedness starts. You'll make another wicked person your refuge, like Saul, but you will not make God your refuge. But trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So who are the wicked? They do not submit to God. They trust in what they have. And ultimately, that will leave them bankrupt. Paints a little bit different portrait of wickedness than what we typically think, right? This can be an upstanding citizen. This can be a church member. This can be a good person on the outside in many ways. They got lots of money, 
But deep down inside, God is not their refuge. And whatever they want, they're going to get by any means necessary. That's the wicked's response to evil. And it's horrific. It's horrible. But it's not the only response, praise the Lord, (laughs) to wickedness or evil. Second, we're going to look at God's response. What will God do with such wickedness and such wicked people? Well, we read it summarized in verse 5. David says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. Do you know what Selah means in the Bible? By the way, readers, we should pause when we see Selah in the Bible. You should stop reading for about five seconds. It's meant to tell you, stop and think about this. Don't keep reading. Don't just blow by this. Selah means take some breaths, take that in. So let me read it one more time, and I'm going to pause for 10 seconds, and I'm going to let you take it in. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. In the face of the wicked's response to evil, David gives God's response. This is what God is going to do about this. And after describing the character of Doeg and the wickedness he represents in verses 1 through 4, now he speaks of the consequences of Doeg's desires, his choices, his trusts, his actions in verse 5. God's response to evil is summed up easily. It's divine judgment on those who commit it, period. God will break them down, he will make them homeless, and he will take their lives. The wicked are in big trouble with God. I want you to notice something remarkable. Did you notice what David said in verse 1? David calls Doeg what? Mighty man. Why do you boast of evil, oh mighty man? Why does he say that? Well, You know what that phrase typically means to David, don't you? You've ever heard of David's mighty men? When the words mighty man come out of David's mouth, usually he has in mind that band of men, those faithful soldiers that gathered around him in the beginning, men who did phenomenal exploits in battle. They did extraordinary exploits and loyalty to the king. They were mighty men of war. Think Gimli and Legolas in the Lord of the Rings. These are mighty men. But he applies this to Doeg. It's pure satire. It's biting irony. He's saying, oh yes, Doeg, you great mighty man. Oh, how you proved it. Look at this valiant exploit of war you did going in and slaughtering innocent priests. Oh, you courageous guy. Oh, you super courageous person when you killed those children and infants in the city of Nob. That takes a lot of guts, Doeg. You slaughtered their friends and their families. Unwittingly, you came upon them in violence when they had done nothing against you. And you murdered them all. 
Medal of honor for you, oh mighty man. See, David's mocking him. And David mocks Doeg and exposes the wickedness of his character. The wicked think they're big and bad. But God will have the last word, and the wicked will look pretty puny in the day of judgment. Notice another thing about verse 1. Do you see what David said right after he mocked the mighty man Doeg? He says, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of the God endures all the day. Now, why in the world does David bring up God's steadfast love? He says, Wicked, do you really think you're going to get away with this? Do you not realize how faithful and loyal and relentless is God's love for his people? This is what David, or this is what Jesus would say to Satan. Oh, you really think you're going to take all of them with you, huh? Do you not know how much I love them? Do you not know how strong my love is for my people? No one will snatch them out of my hand. See, we typically hear God's love and his judgment pitted against each other, like I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. But the Bible in general, and this psalm in particular, will have none of that. Rather, God's judgment is an expression of his love. God loves his great name, so he will not allow rebellion to be unrequited. God loves his glory and will always unwaveringly do what is right to defend it. God loves his people and he will not allow them to be assaulted, maligned, or attacked without defending them and sending recompense on their enemies, even if it is in the judgment. In fact, it is God's commitment to this kind of justice that enables us to love our enemies in the here and now. It's the, it's the kind of thing that leads David to be able to pray a psalm like this and not go after Doeg himself and slaughter him because he trusts in the steadfast love of the Lord. See, if you have to seek revenge on all the people who have wronged you, you don't love God and you don't trust in God's love. Because if God loves you, he will defend you. He will execute the judgment for you. You don't have to do it, but you don't really believe he loves you. So you got to do it. See, David believes that God loves him. So he is not, he's freed from that sort of desire to get his due at his own hands. But because we know judgment is coming, we know that all sin against God and against us will ultimately receive its just punishment, either on the cross or in hell. If, they, if the people are converted, Jesus absorbs it. Praise the Lord. Our enemies become our brothers and sisters. And we should want it that way. Because we were enemies too. And if not, hell will make recompense for all wrongdoing. It's so easy to grow weary, isn't it, of the madness in our world. We can find ourselves simmering, lamenting, sighing, angry at all the violence in our world, whether it's in the hallways of a Christian school or the crowded space of a Sweet 16 party or on the floor of Congress or in the chambers of our own hearts. But the day is coming, dear ones, when God says in Isaiah 60, he will make peace our governor and well-being our ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin, nor destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. (laughs) Because God is just, soon and very soon the dawn will break, and there will be no more fruitless arguments between friends or spiteful pettiness between husband and wife. No more pointing of fingers or pointing of guns. Wolves and lambs, calves and lions will live together in kindness and God's glory, not our lovelessness, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
words will never again be used as weapons for our disappointments or thoughts used to breed ill will toward others. We will see Jesus. We will be completely like him. Tears will be wiped away. Pain will be redeemed. Everything will be healed. No more worries. No more wars. No more regrets. No more shame. No more hurting or hurting others. No more ideological right or left. Only Jesus at the center. The earth will be filled with God's manifest presence and redeemed, blood-bought, beloved, every tribe, every nation, family, with all of God's promises fulfilled. Oh, Lord Jesus, come soon. How we praise God for his just response to evil that guarantees a future righteous home for us, an earth that will be filled with righteousness where evil will be gone once and for all. That's God's response to evil. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, though the wheels of justice grind slowly, they grind very fine. So do not put it on your timetable. Do not insist that God must judge when you want him to judge. Well, why wouldn't God do something like that? Why would he allow something like that to happen? Why won't he judge? Do not regard the patience of the Lord that way. Regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. Another day of mercy. Another opportunity for people to come to Christ. Another opportunity for people to be forgiven and reconciled to God. That's why he's waiting, friends. Because his mercy has a hair trigger and his anger has a slow, slow wick. Third, the godly's response to evil. We've seen the wicked and God's. Now look at the godly's response in verses 6 and 7. We read, The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge. So having considered the wicked and God's response to evil, now David turns to what he calls the righteous, the godly, the righteous response to evil. Two things that he notes about the righteous response to evil, and I trust this is ours since we as God's people are the righteous in this psalm. So how, would we, how should we respond to evil, first of all? Notice what he says in verse 6. The righteous shall see and fear. In other words, when the righteous consider God's response to the wicked, we understand that there is a God above heaven to be feared, to be held in awe, to be worshipped, and to be honored. Dear ones, this this expression of God's judgment on sin and wickedness should cause the righteous in a right sense, not to be afraid of God, but to reverence him for his holiness and to recognize that he is the just judge of all the earth. And we don't play games with God. This is one of the purposes of church discipline, isn't it? Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, do not admit a charge against an elder or really any Christian, really, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, as those who persist in sin, if elders persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. So why? So that the rest may stand in fear. So that the rest will recognize that God is just and sin is not to be trifled with. It's, it's meant to have a leavening effect on the congregation. I don't want to go there. I don't want to have my sin dealt with publicly like that. Deuteronomy 17, 12, and 13. The man who acts presumptuously, God says, by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord or the judge, that man shall die. Now, this is Old Covenant. We don't do that now. But we, in Deuteronomy, it was part of a theonomic society in which God ruled as the people's king. 
So you shall purge the evil from Israel, and the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. So again, it was God's judgment, even on his people's sin, was meant to communicate to the, to the congregation that God is righteous. So we see and we fear we should. Secondly, the righteous shall laugh at him. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? What a, con- what a contrast of emotions. This is the righteous, though. This is the way we feel. Do you not feel this way? At one and the same, when you see wickedness flourishing, at one time there's fear there, there's alarm, but at the same time there's almost a bold confidence. This is not going to be gotten away with, ultimately. The righteous, David says in verse 6, shall laugh at the wicked. Now what kind of laughter is that? I think it's certainly not the laughter of a person looking at the plight of another human being and delighting in some sort of warped way at their misfortune. The righteous don't do that. The righteous don't say, ah, I'm glad he's getting what's coming to him. That's not the way the, the righteous don't mock and, and gleefully celebrate in some sort of sick way like they shouldn't, like that wouldn't be their plight but for grace. Almost like they, well, I'm glad I got out of that. I'm, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. No, that's not the way we respond. If that were the case, then the righteous would not be much different than Doeg, would they? It could, of course, be the laughter of derision against the enemies of God. We do see that in Psalm 2, where God says he laughs his enemies to scorn. He he mocks their mockery. I I think there's a time for that and appropriateness to that. It's a laugh like the joke I see most Resurrection Sunday mornings in quoting Matthew 27, 65, when Pilate said to him, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. And I'm like, yeah, good luck with that. Good luck with that. I don't care how many guards you put out. Jesus is coming out. So it's, it's that kind of mocking, that kind of, yeah, that's not going to happen. But I, I want to propose maybe a slightly different kind of laughter here. What if it's the laughter of joy? What if it's the people of God laughing for joy at the unexpected but gloriously just divine plan of God being unfolded before their eyes. Hang with me here. God bringing this seemingly powerful man to justice and defending those who are seemingly weak in the world before those who are seemingly powerful. I'm not sure that this captures this kind of laughter, but I was reminded of the scene from the book or the movie, The Return of the King. We've already quoted Lord of the Rings first. Let's talk about it again. Remember when Sam and Frodo have been rescued from Mount Doom and they've been in a deep healing sleep after many trials and tribulations of taking the ring to Mordor? What happens? Well, Aragorn, the king, has worked his healing powers on them. And what happens when Sam awakens? Sam awakens and he sees Gandalf. Sam thought that Gandalf had been killed. And this is the first time that he's laid eyes on the great wizard and Tolkien puts these words in Sam's mouth. He says, quote, When Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on some soft bed, but over him gently swayed wide beechen bows, and through their young leaves sunlight glimmered green and gold, and all the air was full of a sweet mingled scent. And then Gandalf speaks. A great shadow has departed. And then he laughed. 
And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as Sam listened, the thought came to Sam that he'd not heard laughter. The pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had never known, but he himself burst into tears. And then, as a sweet rain was passed down, a wind of spring, and the sun will shine out the clear, his tears ceased, and the laughter welled up. And and at laughing, he sprang up from his bed. Maybe that's why Jesus wipes away the tears from our eyes. Because they're the tears of supreme joy. This is a different kind of laughter altogether. This is the laughter of Gandalf that Sauron, the great and evil lord, has been overthrown by two defenseless hobbits that have walked into his land with his instrument of doom and dominion and destroyed him with his own weapon. And the only response is laughter. Laughter at how the will of the one has overthrown the power of evil in the most surprising and unlikely of ways like a Galilean peasant from Nazareth. And I wonder if that is something of the laughter that the righteous experience when we see the plans of the powerful dashed against the rocks by the will of Almighty God. The result of not making God one's refuge is to be snatched up and broken down and to lose all life. And the bitterest judgment awaits those who will not trust in God. And the sweetest of delights awaits those who do. So what about you, dear ones? Are there any among us this morning? Is God your refuge? If not, there's still time. According to verse 7, there's only two places of refuge. God or your own destruction. But here's the good news. God entered your destruction in the, purpose of Jesus, in the person of Jesus Christ so that he would become your refuge. <laughs> How's that for the steadfast love of the Lord? God is not only glorified in his justice, but he's also glorified even more so in his grace. He saves those of us with deceitful mouths. He saves those of us with lying tongues. He saves plotters of murder. He will save a rebellious group of people who are bent on evil through his good, loving, merciful son, Jesus. What does that kind of response look like? What does it mean to take God as our refuge? We see it exemplified in David's response to evil in verses 8 and 9. And here's our last point. David's response to evil. David says in response to evil the following. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it's good in the presence of the godly. What does he say? First of all, he says... I will trust. I will trust in the step. You want to be, if you want to be a green olive tree, which is a flourishing human being, notice it happens in the house of God. It happens by someone who makes God their refuge and his people their companions. There's all kinds of church imagery over this, too. Jesus, he's surrounded by the presence of the godly. He's in the, he's surrounded by thoughts of the house of God. And he says, I'm like a green olive tree. I'm like one who is fruitful and flourishing. How? Because I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Isn't that good news? You don't have to be loving forever and ever perfectly. David's not trusting in anything in himself. 
He's not saying, I'm glad I'm not like Doeg. I would never do such a thing. He says, I trust in God's love for me. That's how the righteous respond. That's how David responds. I don't have to understand, David says. I don't need to know all the reasons why. God has morally justifiable explanations for all the evil he's allowing in my life. And I know for one thing, one reason it's not, it's not because he doesn't love me. You see that? That, that, There's so many lessons for us in that. If there was ever anyone, maybe besides Job or Jesus, who would think that by the way he's treated, God does not love him, would it not be David? Allowing all this to happen to him? One calamity after another, pursued by evil people for their own reasons. God seemingly silent, doing nothing about it. And yet David says, I trust in the steadfast love of the Lord forever and ever. God loves me, I know it. And how do we know it? The cross. The cross tells us. When all of life speaks contrary, we look at the cross and we like, okay, all this is happening to my life. I know one reason it isn't. It's not because God doesn't love me. He's already proven that on the cross. So I will trust, David says. Secondly, I will thank David. Come on, let's not get carried away with this gratitude thing. There's a time for every purpose under heaven. Now's the time to be sad. Now's the time to lament. Now's the time to grieve. Now's the time to be sorrowful. Yeah, and he's experienced all that. But now he says, I'm going to thank though. See what he says? I thank, will thank you forever. Why? Because you've done it. What's the it? Everything in Psalm 52. The wickedness. God has done it. Now, not specifically done it himself, but decreed it, using it, over it, sovereign in the midst of it. He's done it. Judgment to come. He's done it. Steadfast love of the Lord for me. He's done it. I know it. So he says, I will thank you. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I thank you that the evil you allow has a good purpose behind it. Evil's not sovereign God. You are. And David says, so I will thank you that that is the case. Thirdly, he says, I will wait. That's hard to do, isn't it? (laughs) Especially when you're under great suffering. He says, I will wait. I will wait for your name for its good in the presence of the godly. You know how you're able to wait? You're in the church. You're surrounded by the godly. It helps you wait, doesn't it? You see other brothers and sisters suffering. You see them enduring things. You see them carrying on in their own trials. I can wait. They're waiting. I'll wait with them. We wait together. We don't wait by ourselves. That's an awful place to wait. But we wait in the presence of God with his people. It says, I will wait for your name for it's good. I make no demands. I give you no timetables, God. Your righteous judgment will unfold according to your wise will and your wise timing. I trust you. I love you. I thank you. I will wait for you. Now, how can David respond this way? How can we respond this way? Let me conclude with this. What makes David so different from Doeg anyway? Well, part of the answer, I think, can be found in the fact that Psalm 52 occurs right after one of the most significant psalms ever written. Psalm 51. You know Psalm 51, don't you? It's where uh, David goes and murders some innocent people. You know, like Doeg. 
It's where David, this righteous king, sleeps with a woman because he wants to. It's, it's where David lies and deceives people with his tongue about what happened. You know that David, godly David. You know it's that David who was a lot more like Doeg than we'd like to think, aren't we? Read Psalm 51, then read Psalm 52 and you say, wow, David's like Doeg. Maybe I'm like Doeg. The events of Psalm 52 occurred years before the events which led to David praying and writing Psalm 51, which are in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, which Lord willing we'll get to this fall. But if you think about what we learn about David in Psalm 51 and the incident which led him, led him to pray it, in the end, the only difference between David, who murdered someone, one of his own mighty men, and David mockingly calling a mighty man for his murder both deceiving, both lying in the process, is God's grace. That is it. It's not because David was good. It's because God was gracious. The Lord has the right to be merciful to anyone he wants to be merciful to. Justice justice is owed everyone. Mercy is owed to no one. And God freely gives it according to his own purpose. When you get that, friend, dear one, brother and sister, when that goes deep in your heart, you respond differently to the evil around you because you know you're a whole lot more like the people around you than you're like Jesus. The gap between them and me is a shorter distance between my gap to likeness to Christ, is it not? So you're more like unbelievers than you are like Jesus. You're one of, you're, you're, you were in their camp. You were an enemy of God. I was an enemy of God. I was a liar, a deceitful person. Doeg deserves to go to heaven before I do. Do you believe that? Or do you believe Doeg, oh, he's gone too far. He could never be forgiven. Then you don't believe the apostle Paul could be saved because he was a Doeg of the New Testament. God is gracious. Praise his name that the foundation of our salvation is built on the grace of God. The repentance that flows from David's heart in Psalm 51 was prayed by a na- not by a person who had a better nature or a better person than Doeg did because the word it was because the word of God confronted him through the prophet Nathan and David cast himself upon the grace of God. The repentance which flowed from the heart of David was not the cause of God's grace to him. The grace of God to David is the cause of the repentance which flowed from that grace. See, there isn't much difference between David and Doeg. They both murdered the innocent. The only difference is the grace of God intervening in David's life by the word of God, blessed by the spirit of God. That's it. And that's the only difference between us either. The word of God, blessed by the spirit of God, causing us to see our sin and turn from it. That's it. It's the only reason. It's easy for us to sometimes to say, but for the grace of God go I, when the person to whom we're pointing is a person of respectable social sin. 
It's much more difficult for us to assess ourselves to be doeg apart from grace, but that is what David was, and that is what all of us are apart from God's saving grace. We have more in common with doeg than David because David has more in common with doeg than us. So may God help us never to forget that between us and doeg's destruction stands only the grace of the gospel. And that's all we need, the grace of the gospel. God's grace forgiving our sins, restoring us. So may we respond to his word, Lord's day after Lord's day, as it all goes, as it goes forth in this way. May we not spurn the word of grace which comes to us from his own mouth. Because it may be, and it certainly is, the only difference between us and Doeg. Full-blown evil to our own destruction. Let's praise the Lord for his grace together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're gracious. My, my, how gracious you are. We are so thankful that you do not treat us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. But as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love for those who fear you as far as the east is from the west. So far have you removed our transgressions from us. God, we are not better than our neighbors. We are not better than Doeg. Lord, we are Doeg. In many ways, same heart that resided in him resides in us. By nature, we thank you that you've given us new hearts. We thank you that you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We thank you that we are not bent on wickedness the way either we once were or the way we once could have been had you not changed us. Lord, you are gracious and we celebrate your grace in the gospel this morning. We thank you for Jesus, the true and better David, who... No deceit was found in his mouth. Never spoke a false word. Were he to stand before you on the day of judgment and be judged by every careless word he's spoken, he'd be found perfectly righteous, perfectly innocent. And we thank you that we're judged on the basis of his careful speech, not our careless words. And we celebrate our Savior Jesus this morning. We praise you and thank you for your grace and goodness to us in the gospel any among us this morning who are still outside of Christ, who have not yet chosen God as their refuge, pray that you would draw them to a mighty man of David, a mighty Savior who battled the, the flesh, the, the sin, the, the devil, hell itself, and the grave, and defeated it all for us. We celebrate you, mighty man Jesus. Thank you for being our mighty soldier of valor that descended into this world and fought off our enemies and defeated them and died under our own judgment and worked out our, a perfect righteousness for us that we might be saved. We honor you, Jesus. We love you. We want to follow you all of our days. You have won our allegiance. And as David said to Abiathar when he came to him, you're safe with me. You're safe with me. We thank you that we are safe with you. In Jesus' name, amen.